Welcome. You are listening to the Conservation Stories Podcast, connecting listeners to nature through inspirational personal narratives from diverse voices in conservation. This is Robert Rose, and I'm a conservation geographer and the executive director of the Institute for Integrative Conservation at William & Mary. And this is John Swaddle, faculty director of the Institute for Integrative Conservation. We're coming to you today from the campus of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. This season explores stories of Virginia's Pamunkey tribe, highlighting the past, present, and future of their relationship with local and cultural resources. My name is Anna Kashmanian, and I'm your host for the first season of the Conservation Stories podcast. The Pamunkey tribe is a Native American tribe indigenous to the region we now call Virginia. For thousands of years, the tribe has sustainably managed natural and cultural resources in their historic range. But since colonization, the Pamunkey tribe has been faced with countless challenges to their way of life and the resources they depend on. On this first episode of our first season, we will learn more about the history of the Pamunkey tribe and how their mutually beneficial relationship with the natural and cultural resources on their reservation has helped them persevere before, during, and after colonization. The Pamunkey tribe's territory once stretched across Virginia's expansive coastal region, primarily north of the James River and nestled in the Chesapeake Bay area. Today, the reservation is still located in the Tidewater region of the state, though it is just a fraction of its original size. The Tidewater area is a low-elevation, coastal region with an abundance of biodiversity and natural resources. The Tidewater region spans eastern Virginia and is named after the major rivers flowing through the area that rise and fall with the tide. Within the Tidewater area, the Pamunkey Reservation is located on a low-lying peninsula almost completely surrounded by the Pamunkey River, which is a tributary of the larger York River and feeds into the Chesapeake Bay. Around 40% of the reservation consists of wetlands. So the Pamunkey people have been in the Tidewater region of Virginia for tens of thousands of years. You know, archaeologists state that indigenous people have been in Virginia, you know, up to 15,000 years ago. Um, But Virginia Indian people say we've always been here, right? We don't put a timetable on it. This is Dr. Ashley Spivey, who received her PhD in anthropology from William & Mary and is a member of the Pamunkey tribe. I spoke with Spivey to gain insight into the Pamunkey's relationship with natural and cultural resources and to understand why this relationship is relevant and important for conservation within, around, and beyond the bounds of the reservation. The tribe has retained a portion of their original tribal lands, even after many other nearby tribes lost theirs to colonizers. This long tenure on the land has resulted in complex dynamics between the people, the land, and its resources. You know, it's typically seen as this stereotype, right? That, oh, Indians are so close to the land. (laughs) And in many ways, you know, that is true. But the truth is more complicated than just like, oh, Indians are one with nature. That's a complete stereotypical trope that I think in many ways is not necessarily a negative one, but I think doesn't quite get at the complexities of the relationship that Indigenous people do have to the land. Spivey further explains the nuances of this relationship, specifically in regard to the resources available around the reservation. It's not just the animals that are are supported by the riverine and wetland ecosystem. They're also cultural resources. They are part of 
the tribe's culture and history. For the Pamunkey tribe, as well as many other indigenous communities around the world, there often is no clear distinction between what is a natural resource and what is a cultural resource. Frequently, they are too intertwined to be pulled apart and managed as separate entities. For example, Spivey described how pottery is both a natural and cultural resource for the Pamunkey tribe. Ceramics is still a big part of Pamunkey tradition, I would say Pamunkey identity. And I still, you know, obviously tie pottery to the land and to the river because our clay veins are located right on the banks of the river. And that's where women would go and collect their clay. And that's what they would, that's what they use to make their pots. Before colonization, the Pamunkey tribe was part of the Powhatan Chiefdom, a political alliance of Algonquian-speaking Native Americans primarily located in the area we now call Virginia. By the time the English colonists who founded James Fort arrived in 1607, the chiefdom consisted of around 30 tribes, including the Pamunkey tribe. So this really interesting political movement was happening in this region right before the English arrived. And quite frankly, I mean, the English interrupt it. They interrupt that, that expansion, that, that development of, of what Powhatan was doing throughout his lifetime. You know, God only knows what it would have looked like if it hadn't been interrupted by European colonial expansion and the decimation and genocide of our people. Chief Powhatan, the chiefdom's namesake and father of Matoka, who is widely known as Pocahontas, is a significant figure in Pamunkey history. Before Powhatan was born in 1545, the Tidewater region lacked a centralized political entity. However, with the help of the Pamunkey side of his family, he rose to power and secured leadership of the region. It wasn't just, you know, a bunch of naked people running around in the woods, which is unfortunately a stereotype that people have of Native people, like these, like, the quote-unquote, the savage. Um, no, we were complex political, social, and economic people, just like every other society. For instance, Powhatan engaged in extensive trade networks across the continent in order to control the distribution of prestige goods, or goods that signified power and could be used to strengthen his leadership. For example, Powhatan had access to copper as far away as the Great Lakes region, illustrating how highly organized and far-reaching these trade networks were. In elementary school classes, many present-day Virginians are taught that the English arrived in 1607, setting up camp at James Fort. But these were not the first Europeans to explore the East Coast. When the English arrive in 1607, that is not uh, Powhatan or, you know, uh, the indigenous people's first engagement with Europeans. The Spanish were here decades before that, attempted to establish a Jesuit mission in what we now know as Virginia. And, you know, the English and the Spanish and, and the French, for example, were going up and down the Atlantic coast and the Chesapeake Bay and its waterways. So, you know, by the time the English arrive in 1607, the Powhatan are not ignorant to Europeans, right? And that goes the other way around, too. You know, the English didn't arrive completely, like, ignorant to the fact that there are already people in this land. And these initial interactions were not friendly. When the Jesuit mission arrived in 1570, they made a series of decisions that eventually led to their demise. In addition to competing with Powhatan priests, who had a powerful influence on the Powhatan community, the missionaries also put a strain on food supplies in the midst of a drought. Tired of dealing with pressure to convert to Christianity and hand over scarce food resources, 
the Powhatans eliminated the missionaries several months after their arrival. Let's be honest, they could have wiped them out in an instant. <laughs> they did it with the Jesuit mission. They did it with the mission. You know, they, they could do it. While we may never know exactly why Chief Powhatan decided to allow the English into his territory, one theory is that he saw it as an opportunity to strengthen the chiefdom. By cutting out the middlemen and his trade networks and getting these goods directly from the English, Powhatan increased his access to prestige goods that could be used to signify his status. I think he saw an opportunity that would support his political system that, was, that he was establishing and building at the time with the goods that the English provided and had brought with them, like beads and copper, those kinds of things. So I think it was a, a strategic decision that was made by Powhatan and by other leaders as well. And then, you know, unfortunately, it just it got to the point where they couldn't control, you know, the influx of English colonists. English colonists brought about countless large-scale changes that would have been impossible for Powhatan or any other leader to predict or control. Disruption to the Powhatan chiefdom's political and social systems, exploitation of resources, and decimation of many Native American populations shortly followed their arrival. By using a variety of strategies, the Pamunkey tribe was one of the few in the area to retain some of their lands during this time. The biggest factor in the Pamunkey being able to retain rights to the land, which is obviously a much smaller amount than existed before the English arrived here in 1607, was through treaty negotiations and us fighting to uphold our rights as defined through those treaties. Although the tribe's current reservation is a small fraction of what their historic lands once encompassed, maintaining even a piece of their ancestral territory has been critical to their ability to persevere. Spivey recounts that, without this continuous connection to their current reservation land, the Pamunkey tribe's identity would not be the same. Spivey, whose family has lived on the reservation for generations, reflects on the significance of this ongoing connection to the land. So it's that continual historic relationship to the landscape, I think, that has been kind of the core of defining who we are as a people, because without it, we wouldn't have some of the things that we still have today. Specifically, multi-generational knowledge of the area, a continuous tribal government, and a tight-knit community. The Pamunkey tribe utilized two main strategies to keep control of their land. The first strategy was treaty negotiations. Kakakweske, Queen of Pamunkey, signed the tribe's last treaty in 1677. This treaty granted the Pamunkey tribe their home territory and hunting and fishing rights in exchange for subservience to the English crown. Unfortunately, the extent of the Pamunkey territory was greatly reduced at the same time. Uh, since 1646, uh, that land has basically 99.9% um, been taken away from the indigenous people of Virginia. So even though we fought for our rights, clearly, unfortunately, given the system uh, that we were up against, we have not been 100% successful. The other strategy the Pamunkey tribe enlisted to persevere in the face of colonization was marketing their understanding of the land and leveraging stereotypes about Native Americans. Of course, indigenous people, Native people, I guess, almost since, you know, time immemorial with the arrival of Europeans and then, you know, the development of the United States, have been dealing with stereotypical images of 
of how Indians should look, how should they should act, you know, those kinds of, and how, what is their behavior like? And of course, again, as we mentioned earlier, is this one about them being like one with nature and yeah, monkey people were savvy. They totally played on this kind of stereotypical image of them that non-native people had and they, they marketed it quite frankly. One way the Pamunkey people did so was by becoming guides for hunting and trapping around the reservation and at nearby hunting clubs. Spivey recalls her great-grandfather's experience. And my great-grandfather, who served as a hunting guide his entire life, up until he was in his 90s, talked about how he was like, you know, these white men don't think that, you know, can't get around this landscape without having an Indian to get him around. And really what it was, Again, you know, at the heart of it, of course, it's because they are indigenous people and they have this multi-generational, hundreds of years connection to knowing this place, right, that other people just don't have. It was their knowledge of, of the landscape and of, of the waterways that was at the heart of their ability to, to be successful in hiring themselves out as guides. Another way Pamunkey people engaged with the surrounding market society was by selling goods. Sturgeon, fur trading, and pottery making were all markets the Pamunkey people engaged in to sustain themselves and their community. But one of the biggest markets Pamunkey people engaged in was the American shad market. Shad fishing is one of the things that like Pamunkey people are known for, right? Everybody, especially especially if you're a member of the community, like everybody knows about shad. Like <laughs> it's like this fish that has defined our, our people for so long. American shad is a species of fish naturally distributed along the North Atlantic coast, from Florida to Newfoundland. Shad are a slim, medium-sized fish that were once a year-round staple in the Pamunkey diet. Pamunkey people would actually travel, and, and it's mostly men, would travel from Florida all the way up to New York following those runs for half of, for six months out of the year. And they would sell their catch along the way. That's how they made money. Unfortunately, shad populations have drastically decreased in numbers in recent decades. And no one really knows why they're not coming back. In the second episode of Season 1, we will learn more about the role of the American shad in the local ecosystem, and how scientists and tribal members are working together to bring this species back to sustainable numbers. We would like to thank our contributors and guests, Ashley Spivey, Troy Tucky, and Elizabeth Armistead Andrews for making this season possible. And a special thank you to you, our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. This episode of the Conservation Stories podcast is produced by Dorothy Ebus and Anna Kashmanian for the William & Mary Institute for Integrative Conservation. To learn more about the IIC, this podcast, or conservation at William & Mary, please visit our website at wm.edu conservation or email us at iic at wm.edu. We look forward to hearing from you soon.